So let's pray just as we get into God's word this morning. Lord, just thank you for this time together, Jesus, to gather in your name. And we just pray, God, that your spirit would speak to us through the word of God. Jesus, just as uh, we were singing, we want the name of your Father and your name and the name of the Spirit to be glorified. And so we just invite the Word of God to do its work in our hearts and lives, Lord. We don't come to the Word of God as the authority over the Scripture. We see it as the authority over us. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives would come in line with you, Jesus, and your kingdom and the values of your kingdom and the things that you want your disciples to do and the way that you want them to live as we read this morning. And so, Father, we just uh, ask your blessing upon this time in the Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're getting close to Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way there with the 12. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this this week because some of these things that Jesus is going to say are specific to the 12 and to those who are disciples of Jesus. And it's amazing that Jesus, you know, when you think about this, took 12 men, fishermen, and in three years turned them into fishers of men that turned the world upside down. And I was thinking about this because, you know, I went to Bible school for four years. um, And then I was pastoring for two years as a youth pastor. And I realized, I don't know how to disciple anybody. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy here. I went to a theological institution and I really don't know how to disciple anyone. I'm Working in a church, I don't know how to disciple anyone. And I'm, I'm not saying like, yeah, Bible school is bad or going to seminary is bad or anything like that. It's just interesting that Jesus, when he picked his 12, didn't pack them off and send them off to some institution for someone else to train them. He trained them. As uh, they lived alongside of him and walked beside him and did life together with him, uh, Jesus taught them right out of the things that were springing up around him and in their midst, and I, I think, you know, if I had the opportunity again, or if you had the opportunity to go do more, you know, theological training, or go to some college, or some discipleship program, I mean, I would say, yes, absolutely go do it, but I don't know about you, maybe some of you have gone, one of the things that I've learned is that um, practical life application doesn't happen in a theological institute, it happens in the nitty-gritty of like Monday to Saturday, And so uh, I think Jesus still operates the same way. He wants to take people and make them fishers of men. And the truth is, uh, being made into a disciple is probably not going to happen sitting here on a Sunday morning listening to the word of God being taught as valuable as that is. Jesus wants to use life situations that all of us go through and take them and make the gospel and make... Uh, his working in our lives, practical. And so, like I said, the best discipleship happens, I think, during, during the week. So we're going to find out here in a minute some things that are going on with Jesus. We're in, we're in Luke 17. He doesn't have a lot of time left with these 12 guys. Uh, they're already on their way to Jerusalem. And what's interesting about this passage as we come to it is the context hasn't changed. You know, we've been in Luke chapter 15 recently, chapter 16 in the last uh, couple weeks, and Jesus is told the, the parable in Luke 15 of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost brothers. Uh, he told in Luke chapter 16 two stories about a rich man. And the scene hasn't changed. He's still there with the 12. There are tax collectors and sinners around them. There is a, a crowd of Pharisees and teachers of the law around them. And now Jesus again 
turns to the 12 after telling these two stories of rich men that we saw in Luke 16. He turns to them and he begins to give them some very practical uh, lessons on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think this is kind of like some brass tack stuff. This is like getting down to nitty gritty things in the life of someone who would follow Jesus. And Jesus talks to them about sin. He talks to them about forgiveness. He talks to them about faith. He talks to them about thanksgiving. He talks to them about preparing for the future. So let's, let's check this out. It says this in verse one. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus says, I mean, this is a famous passage. I'm sure you're familiar with it. He said on, on this side of inter- eternity, the, the reality is just this. Temptations to sin are going to come your way. Do you have one of those weeks? I don't know. Maybe you did. You probably, you know, face different things every day, every single one of us. But thankfully, elsewhere, the word of God instructs us that no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man and God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he'll provide a way out so that we can escape from under it. Temptation to sin, Jesus said, is common to man, and it's sure to come. And we have to, every one of us, as we follow Jesus as a disciple, we have to learn to do battle with temptation and fight against sin in our lives because sin is a dangerous thing, even for those who are under the blood of Jesus. We don't want sin to take hold of our lives and get the upper hand on us, so to speak. But Jesus said this, there's actually something more dangerous in your life than sin. And it's this, that you would make someone else sin. (laughs) He actually says, you would be better to be dead than to be found in that spot. Isn't it amazing that Jesus would say that? To have a millstone hung around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. I, I I mean, when you think about Jesus, Jesus had pretty harsh words for anyone who would relax any of God's laws. And Jesus didn't go lightly on the Pharisees when they would tighten the law of God and bring legalism on people and and just make the law of God heavy. I just think it's interesting. It's like he warned there's danger in license, freedom in thinking you can do whatever you want. And there's also danger for us in following Christ and legalism, and having this like excessive adherence to law and formula. So Jesus warned the 12, and this fits for us. He says this. I'm going to read this in a second. You need to pay attention to yourself. To pay attention to yourself. To walk circumspectly. To be cautious about the risks that you face with sin. To be uh, cautious about the, the risks and the realities that your life can influence other people, whether for good or for bad. Others are watching. That's kind of the idea. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to know this. Others are going to watch your life. And we want to lead them to Jesus, not promote license or legalism. Look at verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. There it is. Walk circumspectly, that is. Be checking your own heart. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
So this is some principles here of discipleship. And Jesus says this, if someone sins against you, or if you see sin in someone else's life, you're to, you're to go to them and lovingly rebuke them. Often, you know, the human tendency is this. It's like, oh, maybe you see something in my life or someone sees something in someone else's life. And, and instead of going to the person like the scripture instructs us to do, we, we go to everybody else. We'll say, oh, do you see that, that Matt there and what he's got going on in his life? And the warning of scripture here is, is not to hang on to offense or to dive into gossip about what we see in the life of another, go around and speak to other people about what someone did, but rather just go straight to the source. Go straight to the person and lovingly rebuke them. And if they repent, Jesus says, forgive them. The Pharisees actually taught this. The Pharisees taught that if you could forgive someone three times in a day, you were the perfect person. You had arrived. I'm like, my wife has arrived. <laughs> No, Jesus said this. He said this. If, if this happens seven times in a day, do it. You're to forgive. So Jesus like takes the rule of the Pharisees. He doubles it. He adds one. And really we get the idea. I mean, seven, it's the number of perfection in scripture. There's no limit. Look, at, here's the idea. There's no limit to the amount of forgiveness we're to dole out. We don't say, you know, here's your allowance this week. I forgive you this far, and then, you know, you've used up your allowance. It's all spent. Nothing more for you. Elsewhere, one of the disciples questioned Jesus about this. said, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And you know the passage. Jesus said 70 times seven. In other words, 490 times. But the principle is this. Stop counting offenses. Stop counting offenses and just forgive. And if they say, I'm sorry, and they repent, then forgive them. Forgive them. And the reason we do this is because we hope this is how the Lord will deal with us. Don't you want God to deal with you that way? So, Lord, I repent. <laughs> You're forgiven. Now, I read this, and I'm like, wow, okay, Jesus, all wonderful in theory, Right? <laughs> I mean, but throw in some human beings and mix in the mix, you know, and it just gets a little more complicated than saying, you know, if they repent, forgive them, right? You know, we try to rationalize all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't forgive. You know, is the repentance genuine? Did they really mean it? Was it all lip service? Can a leopard actually change their spots? You know, what if I grant forgiveness and the person does this thing again? And it's interesting, Jesus never addresses any of that. He just delivers this simple action plan. Rebuke someone, they repent, you forgive. And I, I mean, I'm not going to sell this and say, oh, that's easy. The disciples actually heard this and they thought it was super difficult what Jesus was saying. So they said to him, look at verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, you know, we can understand why they would say this. You know, who's, who's sufficient to act like Jesus is acting, asking his disciples to act? Who's good at it? So they said to Jesus, you're going to have to help us, Jesus. Like, if this is how we're to respond to people, you're going to have to help us. You're going to have to increase our faith because we just don't have enough faith to practice what you're asking us to do. Forgive seven times a day. And the same person, increase our faith, Lord. 
You're going to have to do a work in our hearts to allow us to do this. And I actually think this, like, you know, increase our faith, it's a good prayer. At least on the surface, it's a good prayer. We all need more faith, right? I'd like to have more faith, wouldn't you? I could use more faith, especially when it comes to like interpersonal conflicts and sin and rebuke and repentance and forgiveness. So they say this to Jesus, increase our faith. But I actually think that as you read this, Jesus is completely unimpressed with this request. He, he never answered them and congratulated his disciples and said, wow, that was so great. I'm so glad you asked me for more faith. Here you go. Jesus never said, guys, oh man, I've been waiting for you to ask. Finally, you ask, let me give you greater faith. No, look at what Jesus says, verse six. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I always like this picture because when we've been to Israel on our, on our tours, there's like mustards growing everywhere, you know? Uh, especially in the Galilee, so often when we're walking around different sites, I've like just walked the path and I'll be showing somebody on a tour, oh, hey, check this out, this is mustard. You could take these flowers and eat it, you know, and it tastes like something that should be on a sandwich eating these flowers. And I imagine at this point as Jesus is sitting with the 12 and with this crowd around, the hills around them are probably covered with these yellow flowers. And... The mustard plant was probably right there for all of them to see. Mustard seeds are these tiny little seeds. The plant was probably going to flower. And some of the crowd, maybe the 12 were sitting under a mulberry tree, I guess. Which is a type of tree, actually, that in Israel they say is like, its roots go so deep, it's just a hard tree to pull out of the ground. You can't get it out of the ground. It's got a strong root system. It's not easily removed. So Jesus picks up this tiny mustard seed and he says to the 12, I tell you that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could simply say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and tossed into the sea and it would happen. Now that's amazing, isn't it? It's like we know the word of God tells us that faith can move mountains, right? And the disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says back to them through this little story, you don't need more faith. You need to exercise the faith you have. Increase our faith. It's almost to me like that prayer is shifting personal responsibility of the disciples off themselves and shifting it onto the Lord. Oh, Lord, I can't do that. You have to give me more faith. And Jesus says to them, you don't need more faith. You need to exercise the faith that you have. You know, it's interesting. We could do this in our own prayer lives, in our own lives, shift responsibility of action over to the Lord. I can't do this, Lord. I can't forgive that person, Lord. You're going to have to increase my faith, Lord. And Jesus would say back, no, you need to exercise the faith that I've given you because even the smallest amount of faith can uproot the most difficult thing in your life. I like that. Exercise the faith that you have. That, that is actually the key to growing in faith. It's not, Lord, increase my faith. It's exercising the faith that you have, and you'll become a stronger Christian. So Jesus tells a story to illustrate this and to begin to teach his disciples about thankfulness, thanksgiving. Check out verse 7. 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come in at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Wow. Another hard teaching from Jesus. Great story, though. Great story. And we get it. I mean, a servant, when they've done their duty, is not congratulated by their master and get invited to sit down at the master's table and eat dinner with the master. No, the, the responsibility laid on the servant is clear and the job has to be done. And I'd ask this, like, should a servant want to be congratulated for doing the duty they were supposed to do? It's like you had a responsibility, you fulfilled it, what do you want, a uh, thank you? And it, it strikes to the heart of the issue of repentance and granting forgiveness. If you do it, in the heart of the one, I know this because this is my own heart, in the heart of the one who can grant forgiveness at times, there can be this thought, well, I've really done something wonderful here. <laughs> I was sinned against, and I forgave. Congratulations to me. <laughs> but Jesus says, masters don't praise their servants for doing that which was their duty. Duty meaning that it's your responsibility, and it's your obligation to do what the master says. This is very interesting in regards to this conversation about forgiveness. Jesus says to the twelves, I have something that I am asking you to do as my disciples. Now take the mustard seed and put it in the ground. So Jesus is teaching these guys about circumspect living that doesn't teach or lead others to sin because others are watching whether you realize it or not. He's teaching them about confronting sin, rebuke and love, repentance, forgiveness, He's teaching them that you actually don't need more faith. What you need in your life is more obedience. Your faith needs more exercise. He is also teaching about thankfulness, and I would call that learning to delight in duty. I actually called this message out, delighting in duty. Delighting in duty because this story teaches us don't expect to be showered with thanksgiving for doing what you were supposed to do. I mean, we all love to be thanked, don't we? It's like really nice. Maybe you do something around the house or you do something for someone and to receive a thank you, to be appreciated for accomplishing something or being a faithful servant. But, but Jesus' story is actually very practical for those who are wanting to grow as disciples of the Lord. And Jesus is saying this to the 12. Don't expect to be thanked for serving the Lord, for doing that which was your duty. You and I, you know, think about this. You and I are actually not doing the Lord any favors. I mean, the favors are all one way in this relationship. I don't know if you figured that out between you and the Lord. Grace comes from him. We're doing our duty and I think about this, you know, I think about like encouragement, the gift of encouragement. We want to be encouragers. It's good to encourage someone to be thankful for them. But we can't confuse the idea that we're doing favors to the Lord when we say thanks to someone, 
You know, it's good to say, say to someone, you know, the Lord's used you to bless me. Because that's encouraging to an individual. But it's the Lord who gets the thanks in that statement. The Lord has used you to bless me. The Lord did it. Imagine the Lord using you. Isn't that a privilege? When God uses you, isn't it a privilege? What a privilege to serve the master. What a privilege to do your duty. What a privilege that our lives might point someone to Jesus. What a privilege that we get to serve. We don't serve for thanks or for the congratulations of men. Disciples have to learn this. We serve God because that's what we were made for. We serve God because that's what we were purchased for. We serve God because it is our duty to him as his followers, as disciples. You and I haven't done God any favors. We haven't put him in debt. We haven't put him in debt that we should be the ones to receive thanks. He still has done far more for you and I than anything we could ever do a hundred times over, a thousand times over, a billion times over the Lord has benefited us. And so we encourage each other, but we give thanks to who? The Lord. Servants aren't thanked for doing their duty. So we have to learn to delight in doing our duty. Now, what's interesting to me is if you just left off right here, you kind of maybe would be like tempted to be unthankful towards people. Uh, That wouldn't be good because elsewhere we're instructed in Scripture to overflow with thanksgiving. We're to be full of gratitude. It's just that we want to direct our gratitude as disciples in the right direction. So praise the Lord for servants who do their duty. So praise the Lord for those who have faithfully served the body of Christ. Praise the Lord because thanks belongs to the Lord. You know what's better than being thanked? You know what's better? When someone praises the Lord because you did your duty. Luke interjects with a story here. Look at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Leprosy is, we know this, an incredibly devastating uh, disease. When someone was deemed a leper, they were forced to live outside of the community to distance themselves uh, so that others didn't catch the contagion, and lepers did not get healed. Like, you died of leprosy. If you got leprosy, that was the end. In the Old Testament, there's, there's two stories of lepers being healed. Uh, healed. One, one is Miriam, Moses' sister, who temporarily had leprosy, and other, the other is a Gentile named Naaman who was healed. But the Old Testament, I mean, doesn't show us, outside of those two accounts, people getting healed from 
leprosy, and it's really interesting because the Old Testament had a, a very specific set of laws for someone who was healed of leprosy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And the priests had to know how to go through this cleansing ceremony and all of the things that were to be done for that who, the person who had recovered or had been healed. But uh, I don't think in the history of Israel, any priest had ever performed those ceremonies. So imagine all of a sudden, 10 guys just showed up at the temple to do a ceremony that had never, ever been done. They went and showed themselves to a priest. And it's like, whoa, what is going on here? Who is this Jesus? Clearly the kingdom of God had come. Jesus heals the 10 and off they go. They were probably, well, it tells us they were healed as they went. And I imagine some of them, I don't know, grew back fingers because that's what happens with leprosy. I mean, this is dramatic. Le lepers lose their noses. So their noses probably grew back. Like, it is incredible. And, and it's amazing they were healed at the word, word of Jesus. When Jesus commanded them to go and see a priest, you know what they didn't say? Oh, Jesus, increase our faith. They just went, and they were healed. Mustard seed and mulberry bushes. And I imagine as they went, one leper was looking at the guy to his side there and watching him lean on his crutch because he had no toes on his right foot and was missing the little one on his left foot. Hunched over, leaning, trying to go with this crutch, and all of a sudden that man was standing upright and running because of what the Lord had done. And they were overwhelmed with joy to go and show themselves to the priest. But it's amazing, Jesus, what happens here is only one comes to his senses to return and to give thanks to the Lord. Church, the Lord deserves our thanksgiving. We don't give the Lord enough thanks, do we? All thanksgiving belongs to him. There was one Samaritan in a group of 10 Everyone else should have known better. That's what the text is telling us. They should have known better to turn back to the Lord and to say thanks, to come back with praise and loud shouts of giving thanks. But only one man did, a Samaritan. He worshiped God. He fell at the feet of Jesus and gave thanks to God. It's an amazing picture of the deity of Jesus, actually. Jesus didn't say, get up, don't worship. Jesus received the praise and the honors. God was worshiped. And so as Jesus is teaching the 12 about thanksgiving, here's how I would sum up what he's saying to them about thanksgiving. He's saying this. Don't expect thanks, but do give thanks. This is a good rule in life. It's like that'll set you free a lot. Don't expect thanks from people, but give a lot of thanksgiving to God. Give all thanksgiving to God. You know, if you're serving the Lord, give thanks that you've been given the opportunity to serve. The best servants are not those who are looking for thanks. They are the ones who are grateful that they get to serve whether anyone is watching or not because they know the Lord sees. They're delighting in duty. The verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or among you. Now, you know, when Blake and I were uh, talking about 
he's teaching next week, dividing up, where am I going to stop? I said, I'm going to do the whole chapter, and I totally regret it, okay? So we're going to fly over some of this, and uh, if you want to discuss it more, come to prayer tonight, okay? All right, we'll see you there, 7 o'clock. Um, we've been chatting about this quite a bit in our series on Wednesday night through Isaiah, because Isaiah talks a lot about the kingdom of God and prophesies the kingdom of God and its coming, its reality spiritually and its reality physically. And for the Pharisees, the Pharisees were looking for a physical, material, political kingdom, and Jesus was telling them, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom is present wherever the king is. They miss the king. They were looking for the kingdom and they missed that the king was standing in front of them. See, the kingdom is present wherever the king is in church. See, we're not to be seeking the kingdom. We're to be seeking the king. Now, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. So Jesus is warning his disciples, the day is going to come when people are going to be falsely pointing in all sorts of directions, longing for his day to come. And Jesus is saying to the 12, look at, don't get caught up in that stuff. Look at verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. When the Lord comes again, one of the beautiful things that the scripture tells us about is that his appearing is not going to happen quietly. You're not going to be wondering. You're like, oh, was there a star in the sky? Should we be making our way to Bethlehem to find a manger or something? You're not going to be unaware of the Lord's appearing. It's not going to happen for some isolated group of people or some group of people who have a mystical, spiritual understanding of what the kingdom is. Jesus says, when I come, it is going to be like lightning, and it is going to be obvious and visible to everyone in the world. I, I read this week, I never wrote it down about the, the speed of lightning. It's like, I, it's like a fraction of a second for the speed at which lightning travels to go around this world. It will be obvious to everyone. But look at what Jesus says in verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So you're looking for the kingdom. You need to know it happens through the coming of the cross. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." In the days of Noah and Lot, people were living, you know, just going about their life, Jesus says, and they ignored the spiritual climate that was going on around them. They uh, ignored 
and carried on their lives without any thought of the Lord. They laughed at the thought of rain in Noah's day. They laughed at the thought of judgment in Lot's day. And it's interesting to me that the climate is the same today, even though it's clear storm clouds are gathering. The coming of Jesus is certain, he tells the 12, and it will be very sudden. Look at verse 31. It starts this way. On that day, actually just point that out for everybody that's been joining us on Wednesday nights. On that day, that's a term Isaiah uses a lot. It should ring a bell for us when Jesus says that. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is a principle of discipleship, right? Jesus said, come after me, pick up your cross, lay down your life. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Remember Lot's Lot's wife in scripture? She looked back, turned into a pillar of salt, right? She made the mistake of looking back. What Jesus is saying to the 12 is this, is that the call of Christ upon our lives is to take precedence over everything that we would try to preserve in this life. You know, relationships, possessions, accumulating wealth and homes and this and that, everything that we could build in this life. Lot's wife looked back over her shoulder And the scripture expresses the idea that she looked back with a longing, a gaze. I mean, her eyes gave away the fact that her heart was back in Sodom. Church, we're to be looking to Jesus. Not looking to the things of this world. We are to be looking to Jesus. Look at verse 34. Jesus says this, I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. It's interesting to me. You read that and it's like, okay, you know, working out the details, like trying to be, you know, ask questions about when is the Lord coming? How do I be ready? You know, I would just say this. We read this. Just seek to be ready because when he comes, it's going to be like lightning. In some places on the earth, people will be, in daylight, going about their business, doing their thing, about their work lives and family lives. On the other side of the world, people are going to be bed, in bed. You know, it'll be dark. And Jesus didn't say this. You have to stay up all night and make sure you're ready, you know. Have your shoes ready to go. He doesn't say anything like that. It's like, no, that, you know, you can sleep and trust the Lord when he comes. He's going to take you to be with him. No need to panic. No need to be anxious. The requirement is this, be ready. And then, sorry, verse 37, and they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, seriously, what does that mean? You know, I was reading on this, it's like, I was, I was reading one commentary. It's going back to all the church fathers, back to 300. And it's like the opinions on what this verse means right here. It's like all over the place. 
I was thinking about it. I, I know this about vultures. Vultures know how to find dead bodies. Well, once in a while on the Sunshine Coast over the years, I've looked up and I've seen them way up there, you know, just circling. I'm like, oh, those guys are zoning in on something. They found something. And, and I, I've seen, although I don't know much about vultures, I, I've seen vultures on a carcass on the beach one time, on a dead animal. But here's the thing. I don't know where vultures nest. I, I don't know where they come from. They just like appear when there's a corpse that can be eaten. And God has so made vultures that they just know how to find dead bodies. They don't have to question where. And what I think Jesus is saying is that you're like that. You're like, oh, maybe a homing pigeon, okay? It's a little nicer picture than a vulture. When Jesus comes, you don't have to ask where. You'll be right where he has you, and you don't need to worry about where. From every part of the world, people will be gathered to Christ. Scripture tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are still alive will meet the Lord in the air. And it's going to be an awesome day. And until then, we put faith to work. We exercise faith. We lovingly rebuke and we forgive one another. We delight in our duties. We take glory in the Lord. We encourage one another and we overflow with thanksgiving to the one who purchased us with his blood. Praise his name. That's what disciples do. That's what disciples do. They follow and they serve the master. Would you guys stand with me? I invite the worship team to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you have not instructed your church to hide in a hole and to wait for your coming, Lord. You, you've called us servants to be about work, doing our duties, serving the master. And so, Lord, we do ask for help in these things, but Lord, more than that, we pray that you would bring obedience into our lives. We pray that we would be men and women of obedience, that we would not say, Lord, increase our faith, but Lord, that we would step out and take action steps of faith. Jesus, we thank you that with mustard seeds, you can remove mulberry trees. And so, Lord, we trust you this morning. We pray, God, that you would help us to grow in skills of bringing correction and loving rebuke. We pray, God, that we would have hearts of forgiveness to anyone who would ask. We pray, Jesus, that we would delight in our duties, overflowing in thankfulness to you and encouraging one another in the Lord. Lord, all the while, we just desire to be prepared for your coming. We don't know when the master is going to return, but Lord, we're looking forward to that day. We pray, Jesus, we would be found faithful in that day, Lord, that we would be found about the responsibilities of discipleship and following you. And so, Lord, this morning, bring action into our lives, I pray. I pray that the gospel would bring action into our lives, Lord, that we would live as those who are part of the kingdom. And so, King Jesus, have your way in our hearts, in our lives, in your church, we pray. Amen.